We're continuing to study in the book of Hebrews. This is a book of the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. We know that he is writing a group of people with cultural, ethnic, Jewish identity. Thus, it's named Hebrews, who are considering returning back to Judaism, having been exposed to the gospel, having made a profession of faith. They're considering going back. And so the writer writes them. uh, And we don't know really what to call this book. It's like a sermon in some ways. It's like a letter in some ways. So maybe we can call it a sermon letter. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Before I read that, I had a professor in seminary who's now with the Lord and he, one day in class, he, he, he alluded to a book. I, I'd seen this book or, or versions of this book called God's Precious Promises or maybe Precious Bible Promises. It's kind of like one of the books you'd see in the book rack at the airport, where I assume you get your devotional literature from the airport. And I guess that's fine if you want to. But, uh, but you know, like God's Precious Promises, little book of, of uh, God's Promises. And he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine I'm fine with that because the Bible has a lot of promises in it. I do wish there was an accompanying volume called God's Precious Warnings. And his point was that not to undermine or neutralize or dismiss the promises, but to say the Bible has quite a few warnings in it. Um, The one that we're looking at this morning is really infamous. And it's regarded as by many, the most difficult passage in the book of Hebrews, and it's regarded as one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. And what I want to try to hang on to this morning is something that we've been saying all along, but I think it's really important this morning to to try to keep two things, rather than pit them against each other, to hang on to these two things. One is that the writer, whoever he is, and again, when I say he, the one place where he refers to himself in the original that he uses the masculine, so it seems to be a man writing. But the one, um, he seems to really like these people. In fact, in this passage, he calls them beloved, and I don't think that's just rhetoric. I think he really loves them, and he writes this long thing because he loves them, and he's warning them. And I, I really, I don't want you to decouple those. I want to keep those together, that he, he loves the people he's warning. He's warning the people he loves. And I would just say, as somebody who gets up and does what I'm doing right now, teaches and preaches, I, it's easy to feel some pressure to sort of read the warning and then explain it away. And so, to keep me honest, I want to say on the front end, I want the warning to be a warning. And really, I'm saying that I I want us, hopefully, to do what we're always trying to do. Let the text be the text, and let it say what it's saying. This is a loving warning. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Now, where he's been, and these have been some of the sermons leading up, he has been alluding to Old Testament scriptures. That would be their Jewish Bible that they're familiar with. And he's been giving warnings. I mean, he has given warnings like, hey, remember all those people that they saw the miracles, the plagues when they came out of Egypt. They saw God wipe out the Egyptian army miraculously. They saw God feed them in the wilderness where there's no stores or markets or plumbing or anything, care for them. Those people, except for a very, very few, did not enter the promised land. 
left slavery, but did not enter the rest that was set apart for them. And the writer says, don't let that happen to you. Because there's a greater rest waiting for you. Greater promises to, as it were, cash in on. So he's been warning them in love, and then he says this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to this passage, we want to ask you that even in the next few minutes that you would enable us to do something that does not come naturally to us. And that is to see by faith and not just by sight. And we thank you for eyes. We thank you for vision. But Lord, what we see doesn't always tell us the truth. But you always tell the truth. So would you grant us the ability to hear you and to see by faith? And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the 830 service that I've I've been trying not to quote C.S. Lewis too much. And so I've been on sort of a a break. But I'm, I'm picking him back up. Uh, the first thing I ever read by C.S. Lewis, you know, a great Christian writer in his day job, you might say, was English literature, first at Oxford and then at Cambridge. Uh, The first thing I ever read by C.S. Lewis was the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's a seven-part series about this magical world of Narnia that some people get to from our world. And uh, it's interlaced with a lot of Christian imagery, very artistically done, and there's a Christ figure, Aslan, who's a lion. And if you read it, the first story, or if you saw the movies, the, the, the first story, you meet these four English children, the Pevensies, and there's Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. And they not only make it into this world of Narnia, but they end up becoming kings and queens, four royalty at the same time, and fulfill these Narnian prophecies, and they enter into this sort of golden era of Narnia, and then they come back to England. Well, when you read to the end, the last book is called The Last Battle. And at the end of The Last Battle, these characters that you've met along the way from different times end up in Aslan's country, 
And it's a picture of eternal life and the new earth. There's a scene where the, the, the characters, they're trying to get their mind on where they are. They know something has changed, and they even maybe suspect that a permanent change has happened. But one of the characters sees Peter and Edmund and Lucy, and he says, Pardon me, sire, but weren't there four of you? Weren't there four of you? Because there was Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Susan. And High King Peter, said, and Lewis says that he said gravely, Our sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And uh, it goes on to say that, that uh, Susan, who had been a queen, the high, you know, the high queen, that she got back and uh, began to just act like that was a game that they had played and it was just sort of a little thing they went through and that real life was lipstick and invitations and boyfriends and stuff like that. And that she was not there. And I'm telling you, over 40 years later, I have not gotten over that. And don't feel good about it. But it seems that what Lewis was doing was he was drawing from his familiarity with Scripture. Because there are some very well-known figures in Scripture that you would expect to, you know, at the end, make it in and have a happy ending. Let me give you one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Old Testament, King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And the people wanted a king, and so God gave them a king, and he was tall, and he was handsome. And uh, the people just sort of fell in love with him. And, it, and get this, it even says that God's Spirit comes upon him and anoints him to do things that he naturally could not do. Feats of leadership, feats of war. And long story short, he leaves God. So he, he wasn't just somebody exposed to the information about the one true God or just kind of got, you know, got in proximity to it, but affected by it, acted upon by it, you might say moved by it. At least in one place he prophesied under the influence of the Spirit of God, but left God and the kingdom was taken from him. New Testament, uh, Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve apostles. Now, if, if you know that name, he's become, some, you know, he's become infamous as the, the one who betrayed Jesus. But sometimes we don't really connect the dots about up to that point, he was one of the apostles. When Jesus sent the apostles out two by two to go out and teach and do miracles in his name, Judas Iscariot went out and preached the gospel in Jesus' name. Judas Iscariot went out and did apostolic miracles in Jesus' name by the power of God. And, you know, at the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, it's not like everybody went, mm-hmm, and looked at him. And what did they say? They said, who is it? Is it me? They don't know it's him. And he had unparalleled access to Jesus. What Jesus taught what Jesus did. He got to watch him up close and personal for three years and just see, if, was there any crack in the armor? And to watch firsthand that this is an airtight person and to know he is who he says he is. And to watch the effect it's having on Judea and beyond. He felt it, he knew it, and he betrayed him. 
and walked away from God and did not have a happy ending. He's called the son of destruction. Now, that, that not just, you know, initial contact, but close proximity and even profession of believing and then a decisive leaving is called apostasy. And this is a passage that addresses apostasy. Now, that's the kind of language we don't use a lot. But I'm going to use it this morning because that's the name for it. And again, let me just say this. I I want the warning to sound like a warning. I don't want to explain it away. I also want to preach the good news. I'm not just supposed to warn you. I'm supposed to preach the good news. So let me, let me do that in the language of the passage. I want to give you a warning, and then I want to talk to you about, as, as the writer says, better things. Better things. So first, the warning. Let me just read these verses again. This is the, the infamous one in this book and in the New Testament. Beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible. And in the original Greek, the word impossible is the first word for emphasis. Impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, let's just call a spade a spade. That sure sounds like a description of someone who loses salvation. Now, you may or may not have heard this phrase before, but, you know, some some Christians, and I would be one of them, would say that the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. Is this passage undermining that? And this is really a golden opportunity for us to apply a principle. I would say it's the golden principle, golden rule of scriptural interpretation, and we talk about this sometimes. Blank interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. That is the golden rule. Always relevant, but I'd say especially so on this one. We don't ever want to come to a conclusion that's at odds with other clear statements of Scripture. Are there clear statements of Scripture that say once saved, always saved? Let me share one. This is not exhaustive. This is just an example. Look down under the passage in italics, and this is from the Gospel of John, and this is Jesus talking, and listen to what he says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, if Jesus says... If you're one of my sheep and I give you eternal life, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And my Father has you, and He's over all, and no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. If Jesus says that, then that's what I'm going with. Here's here's another example. It's not in the bulletin. There's actually a once saved, always saved text in the very next chapter of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, it's verse 25. It's talking about Jesus, and it says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. That's a really great phrase, save to the uttermost. He's able to utterly save you. That means 
If there was something that we could do to sabotage our salvation, Jesus saves you so utterly that when he saves you, he even saves you from your ability to sabotage your own salvation. He utterly saves you. He saves you from everything from outside or inside that would thwart God's purposes. Okay. Once saved, always saved. And I really do believe if whoever wrote Hebrews, if we could get him up here, he would say, you know what? I completely believe that. But understand what my point is with these original readers. Yeah, once saved, always saved. But what I'm trying to get across to them is once saved, always saved. Not once exposed to the information. Not once public profession made. Even not once moved by the reality of it. But once saved, always saved. Is this a description of people who believed? Well, one reason I, believe it's, I don't believe it is is because it, he never says they believed. Never talks about belief or faith. And that is super important. What, what does he say is there? What did they do? And he says this twice. They tasted. Did you catch that? Look in verse, uh, verse 4 first. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. And then in verse 5. And have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And the powers of the age to come. You know, there's a documentary that I know some of you have seen. You've mentioned it to me. And our family has watched it. Called Psalm. S-O-M-M. It's about people who are studying to be master is it sommelier or sommelier? Whichever pronunciation it is. These are, these are uh, experts of wine. History, background, varieties, everything. Uh, one of the things that these people do as, they, as they're you know, uh, rehearsing and practicing and training to become these sommeliers or sommeliers is they'll have a flight of wine glasses. So you'll have like maybe eight or ten glasses of wine, and they'll t- they'll taste and try to figure out, you know, uh, grape, vineyard, soil conditions, circumstances, maybe the exact vineyard it came from. But when they taste, they spit it into a bucket. Because even if you're drinking really top shelf stuff and not cheap beer, if you drink that much wine, um, that's not going to be sustainable for your future. If you do that on a regular basis, so they'll taste and really taste it. You know, if you've ever had a really great meal and just felt like, wow, that just kind of washed all over me. They are literally trying to wash that wine all over their palate and figure out the notes and the acidity and just how everything goes together. So somebody can take a a, a taste of that wine and really wash it around and taste it as much as they can taste anything. Try to come up with descriptors and say, boy, that, that is a beautiful glass of wine. That is a masterful glass of wine. And then spit it out and not drink it. Taste it. Feel the goodness of it. Feel, feel the, the mastery of it. But not ingest it. Not let it do what food does, whether it's good food or bad food. When it goes into you and it becomes a part of you. You can do that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can not only get in proximity to it, go to a Bible study, go to church, meet with a Christian friend. But you can really 
sort of deep dive, and as you think about it and examine it and process it with other people, that you really begin to feel and experience how compelling it is. And how it's not only intellectually credible, but it's, it's satisfying to your soul and even enjoy it. And then not eat it and drink it. And that's what these people have done that, that are being described here. And, it, it, I, and I never knew this till I, I studied this this week. Go back to verse 4. It says, ones who have tasted the heavenly gift, in this next phrase, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Literally in Greek, that says something like, they've been companions of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is so descriptive. They didn't initially run from the Holy Spirit. They kind of got up next to the Holy Spirit. And at some level listened to the Holy Spirit. And were friendly with the Holy Spirit. But they never became His house in which He lived. And He says this, that when that happens and those people fall away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. They do not come back. They may continue to be churched, They may continue to go to Bible studies, but at a heart level, they do not come back. Um, I've mentioned to you that the the only time that our family has ever, for a little short stint, lived in another country, a few years ago, we got to live in Cambridge, England for four weeks, our whole family. And uh, we never rented a car there, but I rented a bike to get around. And the last full day that we were in Cambridge, I was returning the bike to the bike rental place, and I saw the chaplain of King's College Chapel. And if you know anything about that, some of the most beautiful English choral music in the world comes out of King's College Chapel. And I'd been there some while we stayed there. So the chaplain was there, and we had met each other. And uh, he said, so how is your trip going? And I said, well, I'm returning my bike because we're going back to the States tomorrow. And I'll never forget this. He was wearing one of those great barber kind of coats with that, like, nice warm collar and waterproof thing. And uh, he, he put his hands in the coat pockets and he said, well, you'll fly back across the Atlantic and you'll get home and all of this will seem like just a dream. And he was right. That's exactly what happened. We flew back the next day and it was like all, I mean, we know we went. But I remember that uh, I became a tea drinker there. I, you know, it's like when in Rome, you know, come on. So I drank tea in the morning, got, you know, I thought, hey, I'm, I'm a tea drinker now. Got back, immediately went back to coffee, immediately. <laughs> but even now when we, when we talk about it, maybe around the dinner table, we'll just, we'll think, did we really get, did we punt on the Cam River? That's when you get on that river that goes through Cambridge and do the, and hire someone if you ever do it, by the way. Don't try it on your own. Did we do that? Did we really go to Evensong at King's College Chapel, like some of the most beautiful English choral music you could ever hear with those choir boys? Did we do that? And we did. But it seems almost like a game we made up that we talk about. But it is real. The chapel is there. The choir is there. The grocery store that we went to is there. Cambridge is there. 
But it just, it feels not real anymore. You know, you can, you can get really, really, really into Jesus. Bible, Jesus believers, church. I don't just mean attend something, but like feel the reality of it. Maybe to some degree feel the power of it. There's, the, the text seems to indicate that some folks had even tasted of seeing like miracles happen. Maybe had been acted upon themselves miraculously. You can do that and then you can step away from it. And then finally, like Susan with Narnia, you can talk about it like, yeah, that was, that was a neat time of my life. And it's like it's not real anymore. And, you know, I, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm being a little bit anecdotal here. I'm going on just personal experience and anecdotes and talking with a lot of you. But I think this happens a lot to people in their 40s, and it happens a lot to people late 60s, early 70s. And it comes from all kinds of things. But finally, just the grind of life and the tyranny of the urgent and the busyness and the pace of everything uh, and maybe just being disappointed by the church or maybe feeling like, well, the Bible says this, but like, look at the news. Or the Bible says this, but look at my life. That uh, it's not like anybody you know, necessarily joins Atheist Society of America. They just sort of walk away from it until finally 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. They sort of look back on that time and, and it's, yeah, that was, that was an interesting time and I, I wouldn't trade for it. I learned a lot then, but that's just not really where I am now. And the writer says, if you do that, if you roll it around in your mouth and your palate is lit up and then you walk away, Understand that you will never come back. And he says, like a field that got all the rain and all the cultivation and all the nourishment and it just produces thorns and thistles, that owner will finally burn it. The writer, and this is a dire warning, the writer says, that will be you. Now that is a warning. And this is a target-rich environment. Because it's written to people who are in close proximity to Jesus and the gospel and his people. Could that be you? Have you been around the Holy Spirit and felt his influence, but you have never become his house? Or you have been around the good news enough to know it really is good news and it really does check out and it really is compelling and it really is satisfying. And I do see the, like, inexplicable effects of it in people's lives but you have not bowed your knee to Jesus and said I'm entrusting you with everything be warned but then catch the next verse and honestly uh, I feel like over and over and over I say to you I (laughs) These passages have always been these passages, and the words have always been there, but I never noticed such and such till I had to, you know, study it and get ready for a sermon. That's how I felt about verse 9. And let me say this before I read it, or reread it. If you're one of those people, well, let me put it this way. There's a place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. 
that if you do this sin, there's no pardon, there's no forgiveness for it. I've taught on that, and I bet like if I taught that to a group of 100 people, 98 would walk out and like have lunch and just never miss a beat. And two can't sleep for three nights. And their insides are tortured. Now, if, if you have that kind of tender conscience, that warning that we just looked at might absolutely turn you inside out. And I really want you to stare at verse 9. The writer says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, let that, let that wash over you, that the people that the writer is writing to, that he's nervous enough about to include this warning... To them, he says, but you know, in your case, the, pronoun, the pronouns change, by the way. He's talking about them, those, those people. But in your case, I really do think they're going to be better things. And, and if you have that tender conscience, and if just now you've been wondering, am I that person who doesn't come back, who is not brought back to repentance? Listen to verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Let me ask you this. Like, okay, so, great. But like, how? how? How do I avail myself of the better things and not end up like the field that's burned? What is up underneath people when they walk away from Jesus? I'm talking to people who've received instruction, preaching, maybe own the Bible, maybe have studied their Bible. When that person walks away, what's up underneath it? It's not just one answer, but I, 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 here's a big one. And this is just kind of putting a lot of stuff under one ca- category. They are living by sight. Like, okay, this says abundant life, and like, here's my life. Or here's the kind of joy that's supposed to mark somebody like me. And, well, here's the Christians I know. Or here's what, here's what it says the church is. Let me tell you about my church. Let me tell you about the realities of my church. Or that Jesus is king over the whole world. Have you, have you watched the news? Globally or locally? And they're living by sight. And it's extremely easy to live by sight because you can see what you see by sight. But what does the writer want them to do? Is he saying, now, go through life and pretend like things are great and do not look around at current events too much. Look at what he says in verse 11. Here's what I want. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That means like to do something strenuous. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, briefly, let me zero in on some of the terms he uses. First off, hope. It is so important that you understand what the New Testament means by hope. It's not how we use the word hope. We use the word hope like, I hope the weather is good for the game. Uh, I hope the weather is good for our trip. But we don't know. It's uncertain, so I'm hoping. 
That is not how the New Testament uses it. In the New Testament, hope is living your life now in light of a future certainty that is locked in. That is hope. It's similar to faith. How does the New Testament define faith? Faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. In in the New Testament, you don't just see with your eyes. You see through the eyes of faith things that you can't visibly see yet. You see them through faith. What is the writer saying? He's saying this. Look, if I can put it this way, you've got to play the long game. Because if you play the short game, believe me, it's going to look like this is bunk. And it's going to look like, you know what? It's great to learn about Jesus. It's good to know people's you know, perspectives. But I think all the world religions are really sort of after the same thing. They're kind of like different roads up the same mountain. And let's just kind of all get along. That's the way it's going to look. And I get it, guys. As a preacher, I get it. I, one time I was speaking at a conference down in Atlanta. And Dana was with me. And the conference finished, fair, I, I, I taught fairly early Sunday morning, and then everything was done, and everybody went home. And so Dana and I were ready to, you know, eat, and I don't think I had much breakfast. And so we went to this cool restaurant downtown Atlanta for Sunday brunch, which I never do because of the nature of my occupation. And so we're sitting there at brunch, and I've never had this combination before, but I had chicken and waffles, and, sh- and they brought me champagne, and so I'm sitting there, and we looked. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I looked at like what time it was, and I realized I normally would be preaching right now, and I've got chicken and waffles and champagne. And I remember holding my flute, looking at Dana, going, "Can you believe people go to church?" <laughs> and I'm not saying like everybody in the world can afford a, a, this this nice brunch, and I'm not trying to push chicken and waffles and champagne on you. What I'm saying is that like sitting there in a cool, foodie kind of place, people having fun, nothing's being demanded of you. You're only being served. There's nice stuff. There's nice music. Why would you do this? By sight, why would you do this? Why would you listen to me? It would only make sense if you look with the eyes of faith. And, you know, we talked about this recently. I I just so badly want this to really get locked into your heart because everybody is going to experience pain and loss and trial and tragedy. And when the pain and trial and tragedy comes, what, what is just natural is to look at that and go, huh, is that what God is like? And that is when you have to have patience and faith and inherit the promises, to look at what is unseen in the face of painful visible realities, to have the long game, faith and patience. So let me ask you this. Do you know what God has promised? And I'm not going to read you all his promises. We wouldn't have time. But I thought, before we go, how about two? If we're going to talk about 
inheriting the promises. What are two? I'm tempted to read promises from the New Testament, but the first people that read Hebrews, they didn't have the New Testament, at least a completed one. They had what we call the Old Testament. So may I read you two promises from their Bible? One I know from memory. And these are both from Isaiah, one of the great prophets. God says this, and I I, I love the lead in. He says, come, let's reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, present tense, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. And what is God saying? Are you stained? Stained with adultery? Stained with fornicating? Stained with misusing food and drink? Stained with assaulting someone? Stained with racism? Stained with apathy about the hurting people around you? Are you stained? Come to me and believe me and you will be as white as snow. You'll be white like wool. That's how I'll see you. But let me read you this promise from Isaiah. Almost every year when this is read in Lessons and Carols, the reader is moved to tears. In a world that is polarized and shrill and full of murder and genocide and racism and poverty and disease and divorce and fragmentation, listen to this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall be down, shall lie down with the young young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, that would be Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Do not walk away from Jesus. If you do not have the eyes of faith, ask Him to give you the eyes of faith. And look at Him and His Word and work for it. Not to earn your salvation. Work to see the promises and play the long game. And you will have a happy ending. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that against what comes naturally to us to just live by sight, to react, that you would give us the eyes of faith to see you and your word, to look at what you've promised, to search out your promises, and to believe and anticipate the glory that is to come.
Joy now, but fullness of joy to come. Father, we pray that any who have never for the first time trusted your Son, that you would give this morning faith and repentance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.